Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast for September the 23rd. This is a Thursday. Out of the gate, two big stories. How day one went with our vaccine passports and the vaccine mandates to go certain places and do certain things. We'll talk about bail for an accused first-degree murderer of a Toronto police officer. This does not happen terribly often. Why it's happened and, well, why we actually don't know a ton about it because of a publication ban. This is really problematic to a lot of people, and we'll discuss that. Norm D. Pasquale ran for the NDP in Spadina, Fort York. He lost to Kevin Wong who will sit as an independent. The Liberals do not want him in their caucus. He was accused of sexual assault two years ago. Uh, They dropped the charges, but that still hangs out there, and he didn't disclose this to the Liberal Party. Bruce Arthur from the Toronto Star will join us. Suman Chakrabarty, infectious disease specialist. Dr. Chakrabarty, always great with us. And Jamie Ellerton to discuss some of the political trends and how much trouble Aaron O'Toole is really in as Conservative leader. I don't think a ton. We'll see what Jamie thinks and what happened when for this day, September 23rd. It's all next on the Toronto Today pod. Look, we're going to amplify things sometimes in the media. This happens. And, uh, and I think for the most part, we're going to get to the point where we do understand that, and I thought this especially sometimes with some of the, um, the pandemic party of Canada moments, the PPC moments, like there's nothing they can do and they're absolutely emperors with, without clothing after the pandemic ends when it comes to a platform besides, well, we hate some of you and want you out of our way to go back and get what we want. That's the plan. We can talk about lockdowns. Absolutely, we can. I don't want to see another lockdown. I find it, how would I put it, um, so demeaning and, uh, and, and um, you know, almost lacking tact for politicians who only speak sometimes in the language of tact and don't actually talk in practicalities about how we go and live our everyday lives. I think it's so tactless to be suggesting, well, you know, we got to do this because we don't want another lockdown. Well, we're not doing another lockdown regardless. And by the way, things aren't as bad as you're making it out to be. Look around Ontario and you would spot that that's true. You would absolutely spot that that's true. So I think we're amplifying anger right now. I think we did that to some extent. And there will be moments with the vaccine passports. I think you're well aware of this. There'll be moments where there'll be an incident of some sort. Now, I don't think stores should be calling 911 when uh, someone walks in without a mask on. This got talked about a little bit. You know, we were busy doing other stuff, but I know some of the other shows uh, made mention of it and it, it became a talking point. I understand why, but come on, that can't happen. The, the shopper's drug mart employee can't be calling the police if you walk in, and I know there's people doing this, and you know it too. There's people walking into stores. Hey, um, excuse me, sir, could you put a mask on? Well, I'm exempt. Well, you're probably not. Very few people are medically exempt. There sure aren't any religious exemptions, so don't play off that load of BS, please. But we are amplifying. I, I don't know how we turn it around. We are ampli- We have a role in this. I think the media does have a role in this, and we're amplifying voices that are ticked off we did this last week uh with the ctv and i mentioned this on monday how they did a story about hospitals in alberta they heard from people going oh those are those are mannequins that's a fake story you're like that that looks like the moon landing to me well the ctv actually responded to it and so enhanced their great journalism in doing the story 
But I'm saying to myself on Monday, and I, I know there's others in the business that agree, this isn't taking a shot at CTV. There's amazing people there. There's amazing people in every news organization. Um, don't do that. Don't give it airspace. Don't give it airtime. Don't give it airspace. Don't do it. I'm not saying, I mean, you'd listen enough to the show to know that I'm not just about the positive stories. We're trying to change some things. We're trying to be practical. We're trying to move on and live our lives. I find it a tremendous honor to be on during this time, like as in during COVID, because I want to be on after COVID also, so we can all celebrate and remember what it was like to have to go through this. I said to a group of teenagers, my kids' uh, soccer team, I'm not the coach, but um, we were talking about it in a group. We had a little team meeting the other day because we're not doing great right now. And uh, I said, you guys have been through something as teenagers. Nobody, nobody, none of my contemporaries had to go through. I can't think of the worst thing that happened when I was 14 or 15, but it sure wasn't this. And I, all I hear from people is, well, kids are adaptable and they get used to it. It doesn't matter. The clock's ticking. The clock's ticking. When do you want to get yours back? When do you want to pick up the things you lost? When do you want to do things as a family again that you've got the confidence that you're not afraid to do? So, look, a lot of people have access to grind. There was a story the other day uh, from Yorkdale Mall. It's funny. I have to go to Yorkdale Mall today to return something. And uh, and there was a robbery at Yorkdale Mall among uh, seven people who robbed like four or five 14-year-olds. About the most cowardly thing you could potentially do. Seven guys robbed four boys at Yorkdale Mall back in the summer. Okay, the victims are all under the age of 15. They were walking in the mall. Seven males approached them. They robbed them of personal items and clothing. All the suspects are between 18 and 20 years old. That's terrible. And you know why the 18 and 20-year-olds do that? Uh, they know that they're not, there's not a high price to pay if they indeed get caught, if they get caught on video surveillance. They're not getting five years in prison. They're not getting one year in prison. I think it's pretty gross, and I would give prison time for that. You bet I would. Absolutely I would if we can nail you for something like that. But, you know, a a little wag of the finger isn't exactly what we're looking for. My point in bringing it up is if you saw the story and that was what you focused on, you'd think, is it safe to go to Yorkdale Mall? Absolutely it is. Of course it is. Do you have to, you know, be aware of your surroundings? Of course also. But that's not to blame the victim in any context. The vaccine passports, this is going to go well. This is going to go well. But the point is, is that cops and bylaw officers end up being pretty busy. Patrick Brown's the mayor of Brampton. And he noted yesterday on John Oakley's show that there's just no way. There's no way they can ask people to handle this locally. And that part I agree with him on. Essentially, what the province is saying is you have to take a police officer or bylaw officer off an important task to attend to this. And we need to have a plan for this. We need to have resources for this. And so, you know, I I just think we need to have that conversation. I appreciate the goal of getting more people vaccinated, but I I think there needs to be some follow through in terms of how it's going to be resourced. Yeah, I don't know about the resources there. That's where I might push back on the mayor of Brampton, who is on this show frequently. uh, And I have a good rapport with him. And and I think I'm allowed to agree and disagree uh, accordingly with him. I don't think we can ask the province for resources. And I don't think we want to get to the point where there's a security guard in every single retail environment or every single bar. Uh, I don't want the bars to have to pay extra for it either. And I'm empathetic to the idea that you don't want some 17-year-old hostess being growled at by some 40-year-old burly dude who won't get vaccinated and is insisting on coming in the restaurant. 
But guess what? That's been happening in bars and restaurants. I used to host before I waited tables. You had to clear drunks and drunken disorderlies out. I had to chase down three guys in a park once who did a dine and dash. I wish I hadn't done that. I put my I risk on the line over like 80 bucks when I wouldn't have even had to pay it myself. I think about that all the time. The guys were a little menacing, but eventually they handed over the money. But I was by myself in a park at 1130 at night, Victoria Park in London, with three guys surrounding me. That wasn't the smartest move on my part. The point is, we're just going to have to let some things go, okay? But I I worry that in the media, we'll emphasize the few incidents and issues that we end up having. So I mentioned that robbery at Yorkdale. If we had a shoplifting story every night on TV, you'd assume there was some huge epidemic of shoplifting. There isn't. That's not going to happen anytime soon, okay? So we're, we're doing this a fair bit in terms of, allowing the loud minority to kind of dictate terms. And I don't want us to do it. I understand why some stuff ends up, look, this isn't about what leads a newscast and what's, what doesn't, don't get me wrong. It's not about that. And it's not just about giving you good news. How many times have I said on the air, camps in the summer were a massive success. Did we do a, did, was there a story about camps being incredibly successful, overnight camps and day camps? Not that I'm aware of. We just moved on and shrugged our shoulders. We should have celebrated that. We had one camp shut down for a week because of two or three positive cases that popped. No kids got sick. They just happened to have positive COVID tests. And we've got to make a clear and, and, and obvious distinction about that. Let me shift to this just for a couple minutes. And I'm going to talk about a, a ton at eight o'clock. The, there was a uh, murder of a Toronto police officer in the summer. At least the courts and the, uh, the the police investigating believe so. There's a 31-year-old man named Umar Zamir charged with uh, first-degree murder. This happened right before Canada Day. I remember doing the show Canada Day morning and finding out this, this happened overnight leading into July 2nd. So Detective Constable Jeffrey Northrup was killed in the underground parking lot beneath City Hall. Get your head around this. Try your best, and and if you can't, I understand because I can't get my head around it. The gentleman, Umar Zamir, that's accused, is going to stay in the community, but is out on bail. I've never heard of this. And uh, Ed Tubb from the Toronto Star pointed me, who does a a great job and is so well-researched and has done great work on COVID, pointed me to a case that happened in 2007. But it's been that long, and it also has been in Toronto. But this wouldn't happen, as you know, in anywhere in the United States that a alleged and accused cop killer murder one. Okay. So it's not deemed at all an accident would be out on the street, regardless of circumstance on bail before the trial. We don't know why this has happened. Superior court justice, Jill Copeland's reasons for releasing Zamir are well, um, well, we don't know because they're covered by a publication ban. Like, what else could happen in this case? That This is starting really, really badly. So the papers, I can't talk about, even if I attended the hearing yesterday or I was there via Zoom as a court reporter, I can't talk about on the, on the radio why she made the decision to release that particular man. The defense lawyer yesterday said he would ask the court to release a, release a portion of her reasons so the public understands the case better. Here's what Nadir Hassan said in an email to the Toronto Star. When an indi- this oh, sorry about that. My, my fault. I'll, I'll come to the audio in a second, Rob. That's my fault for the cue there. When an individual charged with a serious crime has been granted bail, the public is inevitably curious about the reason. We can only respond that there is much more to this case and this tragic situation than meets the eye. In due course, this will become clear. 
Remember, it's September now, and in July, here's the audio, he did say this in the summer also. So the lawyer for the accused is being very consistent here. When this matter goes to trial, the complete story of what took place in that city hall parking lot will emerge. It would be a mistake to assume that Mr. Zamir is guilty just because he's been charged with a very serious offense or because a dedicated public servant died on the job during this tragic event. All good. I'm all good with everything he said there. He's got to defend his client. I've got an open mind about the trial. I want to hear what happened. But the two things that stick out to me is a publication ban doesn't help public perception. It makes people a bit panicky that something untoward is happening. They're generally not good in the first place. They weren't good pre-internet when we did it with Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka. Look what happened there with Homolka. So I'm not a big fan of publication bans. And then there's the second part, which is the bail. I don't think the person should be out on bail, period. It's incredibly rare that a person accused of killing a cop is released from custody. Only in Canada, you say? Yeah, pretty close to it. Yeah, probably. COVID-19 had an impact on the election, no doubt about it, for turnout. Um, And you also know the story in Spadina, Fort York, Toronto Spadina, Fort York, with Kevin Vuong. We started telling you about it on Friday. We talked about it over the weekend when the Liberals asked him to pause his campaign. By Monday, it was slightly problematic to some that Vuong had not on any of his social media. First of all, he hadn't responded to any request for comment, and he was still touting himself if you will as a liberal that's not something that you just don't get around to yesterday adam vancouverden the milton mp and former gold medalist at the olympics who was on our show tuesday after the election said this is this should not stand we don't want adam vancouverden not just as a member of the liberals but in the house of Commons at all and he should resign his seat he said this on ctv yesterday kevin Vuong will not be sitting as a liberal mp and it's uh, my personal belief, and I haven't spoken with uh, everybody in my party, um, and certainly there may be different opinions, uh, which is fine. I think he should resign. And I think that uh, eventually there should uh, be a, a by-election in, in that important riding. Um, but I don't think that, uh, that he should uh, continue. No. Now, there's a lot, that was him on CTV yesterday. Um, there's a lot of people that clearly in that riding want a by-election. I think it probably affected final numbers at the polls in an incredibly close race. Our next guest finished second in that race. He ran as a new Democrat. He's also a Toronto Catholic District School Board trustee. He is Norm DePasquale. Norm, it is great to have you on the show. Thank you very much uh, for choosing us to tell your side of, of where you're at with this, uh, with this election and the result. And I appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Greg. It's always a pleasure to be on the show. Uh, You know, we've not gotten to meet, but you strike me as a very sincere guy. You put your heart and soul into this. I want to give you a chance first to to talk about what it meant to to, to run, and then we'll talk about all that's happened uh, since you decided to run. But working with your campaign team, you were out and about everywhere. You're very active on social media. Uh, You must have so many people that you're grateful for, and they're grateful for you also. Yeah, I mean, we had an incredible campaign team and just a great group of volunteers and just really committed people and um, people who bought into Jagmeet Singh's vision. And, um, you know, it, it was just great to speak to thousands of people in Spadina for York and, and, and really hear what was important to them. The last result I saw for percentage had uh, Mr. Vuong at 37.9 and had you at 35. Did anything change um, or are those fairly accurate numbers percentage wise? Yeah, actually, I believe the counting is complete, and uh, Ke- uh, Kevin Wong has now won with 39% of the vote, and uh, I'm at 35. 
You wrote this yesterday on Twitter. Uh, the truth is that Kevin Wong has not earned the right to serve this community. And while I did not win, he forfeited his right to stand as our MP. When this started to percolate uh, Thursday or Friday for the rest of us, did you have some form of, of knowledge prior to that something's not quite right and, and there might be a bit of wobble with uh, with the liberals and Kevin Wong here in, the, in this riding? Well, I mean, there was an, there was another issue that came up of of a loss a business lawsuit um, earlier in September, which you know may have served as a warning for the electorate, uh, but th- there was no indication that something like this was coming. So Friday, you you find out when everybody else does. Um, that probably doesn't change what you do. You were running a positive campaign. You didn't talk about uh, these particular allegations, and and you can imagine as well what a complex scenario it is uh, for the media. Kevin shouldn't be tried uh, and either convicted or acquitted in the court of public opinion. But the problem, Norm, as you might imagine, and that I had and many others had, is that simply this is a case of vetting. And this is a case of you have to offer this information up. And if you think the party doesn't know about it, to me, you still have to offer it because you can't afford to have been seen to embarrass the party later on if these allegations and the original charge get out. Yeah, you know, well said. And, you know, I was knocking on doors Friday and Saturday and and just listening to people processing their trauma about voting for someone who has sexual assault allegations against them. You know, like um, women feel threatened having someone with sexual assault allegations represent them in, in the House of Commons. And just to hear people's kind of horror at, at what, what, had, what had happened. I mean, they voted in the advance poll far before um, these allegations came out. And now they have to kind of process, like, you know, the, the trauma of having made that decision. So did you talk to people that were very ready to change their vote in that period of time over the weekend? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, many people came up and said, you know, I, I, vo- I voted I voted uh, liberal in the advanced voting. But had I known, I would have voted for you. And, and that was a very kind of similar refrain that, um, that I heard through through that period. And, you know, I, I just feel terrible for survivors and women in our community, um, you know, having to deal with this. And definitely. Practically every person I spoke to uh, said said that. Norm DePasquale, our guest, uh, he was NDP candidate uh, in Spadina, Fort York, finished second in an incredibly close race to Kevin Wong, who, as it stands right now, would be an independent in the House of Commons. You also wrote, time is up on this behavior. We must always call it out. Must always call it out. I believe survivors. Um, I know that's not necessarily you weighing in on the potential for whether he was guilty or not of this, uh, but there is an element of accountability that, that I think we'd all agree uh, Mr. Wong lacked in terms of uh, in terms of disclosure. Hey, absolutely. And then, you know, th- there's the other thing, which is we, we believe survivors. I mean, when somebody comes, it's very hard to get through the legal system with an allegation like this. Um, and, and we must all believe survivors when they come forward with their story takes an incredible amount of bravery and courage to come forward. And then there's repercussions and reliving the situation for the survivor. I mean, I just feel, feel very terrible for this person. And I'm um, and, and just, it was incredibly brave for her to come forward. What should Mr. Wong do now, Norm? Well, I, I believe he forfeited his right to stand as, as an MP. Um, I, I believe that there should be a by-election um, so that people can determine a, a new choice. That's what our community deserves. Our community is livid. They feel duped. Um, some feel threatened. Um, this is not a good situation for Spadina, Fort York, and, and the residents here deserve better. Would you run in a by-election? I, I'm still a little exhausted from the election, so I'm not <laughs> sure I thought that far. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, this is like asking the college student, hey, you stayed up all night to write an exam. You want to do it again? Hell no. Of course not. I know. I, I'm putting you on the spot. But it's a, but, but that potential is out there, and I wouldn't be the first person to say, what's, what's your appetite for this? Some people would say, yeah, I'd love to dive right in. And you may feel that way in a few days because this just won't be an overnight process, will it? It's not going to get – none of this will get settled in the next four or five days. Yeah, I certainly don't think there'll be a quick resolution, particularly with a statement out there saying that um, Kevin plans to sit in his independent MP. So um, the community needs to continue to uh, add pressure and, and, and demand, you know, that he, he step down and that we elect a better choice for this riding, um, you know, a better choice that the people of Spadina Fort York deserve, bottom line. I want to pivot now to something that I know you're passionate about, and that's schools. I mentioned you're a trustee with the Toronto Catholic District School Board. Um, we're almost three full weeks into the school year. My perception is, and it, 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 that look, a lot was a lot was missed, and a lot was a lot fell through the cracks from the um, the Minister of Education for public schools, especially and the private sector. Um, that said, I think we've got a sense of relief that some things are going better than maybe the the you know the the doomsayers thought they would go uh, three weeks in. What's your perception of schools three weeks in, Norm? Thanks for the question, Greg. So um, I, I'm looking, I, I, I like to look at the data here, and um, today we have 179 new cases reported. Um, and, you know, for, for sure it's kind of starting to trend in the wrong direction. And, and I was worried about school starting with um, a higher number of cases than we had last year. Um, you know, it, it, we are sailing along. Um, I would like to see rapid tests for our students. Yeah. Um, so that we, you know, we could be a little more confident that we're not bringing it into the schools. Um, and it, it, but hey, you know what? Schools are still open, and we really want to keep them that way this year. Well, and I think we make the distinction, don't we? Because of last year at this time, uh, we're all worried about fall. We're all worried, and and to be honest, I think we would have signed up to have three and a half, four clean months, which we pretty much got. We didn't have vaccines. We knew less about the virus. There weren't many more risk mitigation measures in place. But we've got highly vaccinated communities now. And what I'm seeing when I look at the data and I do it every day, probably like you do, Norm, in the states is what I see in a lot of these uh, states that have high vaccination rates is it's not it's not penetrating the community. And that's what we couldn't guarantee last year. Um, And we're able to guarantee it a little more this year. That said, it's rough on the teachers. The classrooms are packed. Um, I was livid when when, uh, you know, and I know it didn't affect your board, but I was livid when uh, Dr. Davila, you know, basically two days into school, scrubbed the idea of uh, of of, of uh, extracurricular activities. I'm like, well, some are a lot safer than others. You don't need to cancel them all. But um, but again, we, we got to count to 10 sometimes and realize what a unique time this is. Well, that's it. And, you know, be, being risk averse. But, you know, at, at some point we, we got to deliver for our students. Um you know, they're missing things like cross country um, and whatnot right now. And, um, you know, at this point, like our student, our students would love to have a normal year. And we all have to commit to doing the things that are required to make sure that our students get that normal year. So I'll ask you finally to come back to why, uh, you know, where you're at. Um, what what are the next steps? Do you wait to hear? Is there consultation with the party? Is there consultation with Mr. Singh? What is the next step in terms of your communication about what could potentially happen next? Yeah, and, and, and this is something that's ongoing, and I would just uh, ask people to stay tuned about next steps. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, I just I'm registering how upset people are in Spadina, Fort York, and it is fairly uniform um, how, how up, livid they are. Livid is the right word. 
So, um, you know, we have to take that and we have to try to advocate for, you know, a better choice for our community. Norm Pasquale joining us. Uh, listen, you, you've committed to public service. You did it with the school board. You did it here. Uh, I said this to even out of Vancouver and, uh, on Tuesday. I said nine times out of ten people take the advice and they say, you should run. You'd be great. And the nine people don't do it. You're one of the ten that did. Thank you for doing that. And, and I'm sure the people that campaigned for you and voted for you appreciate all that you do for your community. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Greg. And I do want to thank everyone who supported me as well. Appreciate that. You got it. Norm Deepsquale joining us on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Really quick on this, uh, the statement from Kevin Vuong came out yesterday, and I'll read you some of it. He's allowed to tell his side of the story. Of course he is. Um, I want to acknowledge the events in the final days of the election. Allegations of sexual assault are a serious matter deserving of more discussion than this statement can provide. For these reasons, I intend to address them at a later date more wholly in a dedicated forum. For now, it is necessary to clarify that we, meaning he and his accuser, were involved in a casual but intimate relationship. I understood everything to be consensual and was always respectful of her boundaries. I do not take these allegations against me lightly. For years, the voices of those who've experienced sexual violence were silenced. So, look, uh, there wasn't enough once the um, alleged victim decided not to cooperate to pursue charges. There wasn't enough to get a potential conviction. I can't weigh in on the case. I know Norm said it. I didn't want it. Look, I, I didn't want to argue about it. He makes the case believe all survivors. I think we have to listen and examine every single accusation imaginable. We sure can't push it to the side. And we got to invest resources and time and, yeah, finances and exam because we have to make people more confident in stepping forward. My problem with Wong is this statement was it carries a lot more gravitas if it comes out on Friday. If it comes out last Wednesday, if it comes out even on Saturday, but to sort of hide in the weeds and he did that, he did this uh, hide in the weeds until the election result is over to not separate yourself from the liberal banner on your social media. Social media is not everything, but it's something that you didn't take it down. I mean, when you change jobs, you don't keep the same job and there's contractual obligations that say don't represent yourself as something which you are not. Kevin Vuong was representing himself Monday as running for the Liberal Party. Is everybody as up on the news as you and me? No, they ain't. So um, I can understand people thinking there was some manipulation, and especially the advanced polls, especially that. So um, it's shady. There's no doubt about it. And there's people that don't want him in the House of Commons. I don't know what the pressure is like sitting as an independent if Kevin Vuong indeed does that. I don't know what that uh, where that goes. I'm not 100% sure. Our next guest, an award-winning uh, columnist and sports writer for the Toronto Star. Uh, he's done phenomenal work writing about COVID over the last 17, 18 months. Uh, Bruce Arthur joins us now on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. I know you want to get in all the heavy stuff and elections and, and jury tampering with murder cases. And uh, I said Doug Ford treated uh, his first day back at work like it was the Friday heading into a long weekend. But he's got two more work days. So this you just don't know what we're going to get in the next 40 hours. But Kevin Kiermeyer, come on. You, you, I know you got a take on this. Would you, have, would you have plunked him right in the spine for stealing the Jays data card two nights ago? Some people say this was a Bush League move. I am a big fan of chaos in baseball. <laughs> I'm a big fan of cheating in baseball. I'm a big fan of maybe securing any edge you can in baseball, uh, up up to and including. Well, no, I will I will draw the line at Barry Bonds taking everything, including insulin, and changing the shape of his skull. I thought that was too much. I didn't think he needed to do that. He was a Hall of Famer anyway. 
But in terms of stealing something that had been dropped, can you steal something that was dropped on the field of play? I don't think you steal it. I think you just pick it up. You, but you would walk it back to the Jays dugout and say, excuse me, sir, Mr. Kirk, like something fell out of your pocket. Like like we would do that for, you know, we'd be good Samaritans if that happened outside, you know, Metro or President's Choice, wouldn't we? Well, except that this is like <laughs> when someone leaves a playbook in a phone book, right, for the NFL, that'll happen sometimes. It's like when a cabinet minister accidentally leaves really important uh, papers <laughs> with, uh, you know, his ex-girlfriend who is in with a biker gang. Anyway, things happen in Canada. Things happen in baseball. It's a difficult it's a difficult situation to really sum up, except that, you know, hold on to your stuff. I find people are really getting in, invested now in uh, the Blue Jays, and they're living and dying. I, I made the case maybe next week feels like the most important homestand uh, in ages, because people forget, uh, Bruce, in 15, after they made all the transactions, Price, Tulowitzki, Ben Revere, Latroy Hawkins, they just didn't lose. They were eight games behind the Yankees, sitting at 500, and really, a lot of us were saying, what's with the deal with Alex Anthopoulos? Does he not want to work here next year? Turns out that that was true. But we just thought, <laughs> you're just throwing everything at it here, and, and you guys still might finish like 83 and 79. But they didn't lose, and they roared past the Blue Jays, and September of 15 was was very irrelevant this next week oh my gosh this means this means a ton maybe the idea of going to Fenway Park and playing a one-game series well and I will correct you a little bit Alex Anthopoulos did want to work here back in yeah. 2016 <laughs> it was more that Mark Shapiro didn't want him to work here and that's where that happened but he already knew by the trade deadline this is like loading up your expense card uh to and before resigning a little bit he it just the fact the fact that Jeff Hoffman didn't turn into Noah Syndergaard was a relief but nonetheless like he he emptied the closet he really did I will also say he had more moves ready to be made if he had stuck around and I wouldn't have been surprised if Joey Votto had wound up a J that oh. Um, that at this point for the Jays, what do you ask for? This is something we talked about in 2015 too, when, before it was clear that that was a playoff team that was going to be one of the best teams in baseball. What do you want? If you are a Jays fan, all you want are games that matter. All you want are games because the best baseball, like the best everything, is when there's suspense on every, before every pitch, right? That time between pitches where you've got a man on second and it's a one-run game in the eighth inning. That's the best baseball there is, and the Jays just haven't had enough of it lately. And all of a sudden, you've got games that matter down the stretch to secure. Maybe it's just that one game in Fenway, right? Like maybe it's that. But this team, again, we talked about this the other week. Is mm-hmm. the beginning of something for this Jays team? This is something that should be able to be repeatable, and you should be something they can build on. But in the next few days, in the next two weeks, this could be real baseball like real baseball and um it's nice to have sports that feel like they mean something because one of the side effects of the pandemic has been often sports haven't really felt like they've meant enough this might be something different so i was thinking about that contrast i I, we'll we'll get into issues about the pandemic you wrote about dr kieran Moore earlier this week um but when you are watching um and if like it's it's weird to think a year ago at this time the bills couldn't even have fans in their stadium most of the nfl games were played in front of empty stadiums most of the premier league games were played in front of empty stadiums i know we talked about everyone's gonna have a different appetite and a different vigor to get back out there and get back at it What's your, what's your read? Like, I watched Michigan play a couple of when, uh, Saturdays ago against Washington. I've been in that stadium many times, 108,000 people there, all kids. They got a vaccination policy at the school, and most of those kids in the stands are in their 20s. But there might be some alumnus, alumni that are 70 that are waiting this out right now. H- how do you feel watching full crowds at these outdoor events? 
I would say that of all the dangerous things facing Canada in the future and in the present and in the past, measuring ourselves by the United States is one. We, are, we should not use that as the bar for the pandemic. We should not use that, them for the bar for almost anything. So I know it's, it's nice to look at, like it was the enter Sandman thing. Right. I think right. that's is out of Virginia Tech. Um, <laughs> like it's, it's, it's incredible, right? Like it's a hundred and a hundred thousand people all singing the same song and bouncing up and down. And it's, it'd be nice to get to there, but we're not that right. Like we don't want Michigan's COVID rates in the past or the present or even probably in the future. Um, the problem you get with uh, you, if you have a vaccination policy for everyone involved, your safety level is so much higher. And if the Jays do that, then I think you could have, you, I don't think you can have like the, the Bautista bat flip game level crowd because we forget how jammed in we are together. And I mean, even if you're vaccinated, you can get and spread COVID. But if everyone's vaccinated, you can have a bigger crowd than we've seen so far. I don't know what that number is. Public health can figure that out. But we at least have a route there because we have enough people who are fully vaccinated. And now, We've got this idea of a vaccine passport system, at least the idea mm-hmm. of one, and that's a start because if everyone can just show that they're vaccinated on the way in, all right, I would be fine with that. Bruce Arthur is our guest uh, from the Toronto Star. So you and I were, were chit-chatting a little bit, uh, I think, uh, on Twitter, might have been by text, on about Alberta and where we would agree that Alberta you know, verged on disastrous. I think you'd make the case it's been more about their restrictions. I, I I make the case it's something to do with their restrictions, but it's they've got hundreds of thousands more unvaccinated adults, especially in the two major cities, Calgary and Edmonton, who ran around all summer and did whatever they felt like. And, and we don't have that. I think we'd agree Ontario is not headed in the direction of Alberta, whether there's bad guidance and bad policy or this or that or not. But lay out for me why you think it's more the restrictions than the vaccination rate that's the problem there. Well, I will say this. It's, you're right that it's both, right? Because you need the, the virus needs unvaccinated people to really, really burn. And, but also, Alberta basically threw open the doors July 1st mm-hmm. and called it the best summer ever. But take a look even in the summer. <clears throat> you can see that Alberta's levels and the rate of increase were bigger than Ontario's because Ontario held on to indoor masking, held on to capacity limits, uh, kept some things closed, right? Like we have had a different experience than Alberta in more than just the idea that there's a slight difference in vaccination. Now that difference in vaccination matters. I believe in Ontario, we're at what, 78%, right? In, in the last uh, of total of two doses or just over 80% now for fully vaccinated individuals. I believe in Alberta, it's closer to 70%. Um, that makes a difference. It's just a lot of people who can get, who are unvaccinated. Um, so I think it's both. I think the thing that we, one of the dangers that I've found of analyzing COVID is that it's hideously complicated. Mm-hmm. It's a huge, it's such an, it's, it's, it's as complex as our society itself. And so with Alberta, maybe with the vaccination level, they were bound to have a rougher fall. But the fact that the government decided to open the doors, the fact that people told them it was a bad idea, the fact that they were so unbelievably confident about it, and the fact that they waited until the hospitals were in the trouble they're in now, they're at nearly the threshold for triage protocols in Alberta. It is absolutely the government decision. 
Uh, They could have overcome that low vaccination rate. If anything, they probably needed more restrictions. Yes. Yeah. Well, you you must find it quite funny hearing, uh, reading the tea leaves and and hearing what's out there, that there are, um, you know, there are members of of Jason Kenney's cabinet that want to stick the knife in his back because they think they're too shut down already. We had the opposite here in Ontario in April and May going, aren't there um, aren't there MPPs for Doug Ford and conservatives that want their constituents to play golf and tennis outside for the next five weeks? Of course there are. So I did, we, we, did, we never knew where that internal polling was coming from. But that tells you how out of whack some politicians are in Alberta thinking this damn Jason Kenney, he's kept us too locked down the last six months. Again, like one of the things with modern politics and especially modern conservative politics, you have to negotiate with the craziest people in your party, with the people who are the least connected to reality in your party, with the people who are the most difficult to deal with in your party. And what you get in Alberta is the most conservative party in the country. I think that Saskatchewan's not that far off. Saskatchewan is right behind Alberta when it came to this stuff. But they are the ones who believed the least in the virus, who believe the least in vaccination. And the, and the basic stuff, forget all the other stuff we talk about, in the idea that the virus is dangerous, in the idea that the virus can overwhelm your health system, and that vaccination will stop it. Mm-hmm. And so I, that, that has existed in Ontario, absolutely. The reason the third wave happened was that kind of thinking, that, except it was in Ontario, it was vaccination will solve all our problems. These people aren't going to wind up in hospital. And then they waited and watched them wind up in hospital. So in uh, Ontario, here's my, what I'm really grateful for in Ontario. In the summer, they were head faking towards stage four. Right. And I think they wanted to go further. I think that they looked at Alberta and they were envious. At least some people in government were. Yeah. And whatever happened, we didn't do that. Right. We stayed in stage three. I think when you look around, when you look at what's happening with hospitals, with the case rates, I think that hugely has to do with not doing what Alberta did in the summer. I'm real curious to get your read because I've talked about media framing before, and I think we're, we're really having a, um, uh, a, a some revelations about how we covered the election. Did we give the PPC too much amplification? Were we were we leading too much with, uh, with with promoting their agenda? And I think about this sometimes with the pandemic. I mentioned it earlier in the show. Where's where's the fact? Where's the sum up story about summer camps and the fact that for the most part, universally, with the exception of one camp that got a lot of attention, they went well. Parents. Were we're happy. So I say this about the science table and, and you wrote about David Fisman, Dr. David Fisman and his frustration with the science table uh, in a in a well-read column three weeks ago. So when I see this and this is the headline back, it's on September 1st um, from uh, uh, CP24 say right this Ontario is facing a substantial fourth wave of the COVID-19 vaccine could see daily case counts reaching 9000 by October in a worst case scenario. OK, well, we're at around 400, 500 cases. So nobody's crowing yet and we're not to October yet. But, Bruce, I worry sometimes that that gets judged by the public as, guess what? We're going to have 9,000 cases by October. They're laying out a worst-case scenario. It's like the L.A. Rams. Their worst-case scenario is being 2-14. and 14. But nobody's predicting them to be 2-14. and 14. Do we misunderstand worst-case scenario where we let it all go like, like Mad Max open season and, and understanding that we know what we're doing, we've got risk mitigation measures in place, and we're continuing to vaccinate people. So it's going to be hard to get to that 9,000, but that's not what the headline says. Well, and one of, the, one of the criticisms I have of the science table is that they didn't do a briefing to explain all that. Yeah. Like one thing that's, that's complicated, there's a lot of scientific kind of concepts 
which have been hard to wrap your mind about. We're on this exponential growth, right? We still don't really truly understand how rocketing it is. But another is modeling and how modeling works. And actually, if you look back at that FISMIC column, you can see that the modeling, one of the criticisms he had was that the modeling was simple for September and that they were holding it back. I don't think it is simple. I think that if you look at that modeling, it gives you a range. That's what most modeling does. And we are right now, thank goodness, wonderful, we are closer to the best case scenario of that range than we are to the top. The top is what would have happened if we'd Alberta. Like if we had opened everything up, that's the assumptions that you see in that upper curve, everything I know. Like that's a 25% increase in transmission. That's increased contacts. That's going indoors with each other. That's how you get to 9,000, right? And that was possible. The mm-hmm. problem with the upper range of this stuff is if you take that as gospel, you have to take it as this is the worst thing that could happen. Right. So think about if you're driving 200 kilometers an hour, what's the worst thing that could happen? Nothing might happen. But there's the, the odds of something bad happening, there's a continuum, and that's where we are right now. So right now, if we're at about, I think the average, and that's what you have to kind of look at, the average is what, six or 700 a day. So we are trending almost flat across those projections. But because of the uncertainties in the mm-hmm. modeling, this was all possible, right? And that's the thing, is that's why someone needed to sit there and go, this is the most likely scenario, these are the assumptions to go with it. And that's why right now, if you're the science, table, I do think Ontario has been scared straight. And I don't think they're going to throw the doors open. That's right. I would have preferred that the science table truly explain their work because this, with vaccination, with all the different possibilities here, this is a more complicated field yeah. to forecast. And that's the, that's really the mistake there for me. By the way, quick text uh, as you go in. Uh, I enjoy your segments with Bruce. Uh, Re Barry Bonds, does Bruce actually think it's unusual for a man in his 30s to grow his hat size by a couple extra feet? I'm not sure that's accurate, and I don't think you said that. So I think I think it was several inches, Barry. Barry Bonds is yeah. You're not supposed to grow two shoe sizes and a hat size in your mid 30s, that I'm aware. As, so, as somebody who's in his late 40s, I know a lot <laughs> of stuff happens to your body as you get older, and not all of it is great. But I will say this: if you looked at me 10 years ago and you looked at me today, and my head had Barry Bonds increased, yeah, you would go, "Oh my God, what happened to you?" Not you look a little different, Bruce. And that's the difference. It's like people look at me now and they go, oh, you look pretty much the same for the most part. For Barry Bonds, you could <laughs> spot him from across the room and go, what happened to that guy's melon? Like it was really, we forget. This is a long time ago now. We forget. It was intense. And it's something I've never seen in sports other than that. Well, the Simpsons baseball episode with Ken Griffey Jr.'s gigantism yeah. forecast, foreshadowed <laughs> the actual growth of Barry Bonds in real time, in real life. So we didn't know that that was going to happen. But when in doubt, go back to the Simpsons. Uh, thanks for the segment, Bruce. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Brady. <laughs> Dr. Suman Chakrabarty is an infectious disease specialist with Trillium Health. We chatted last night, so this is the first time it airs, crystal clear. Um, and we talked about going into September. And as we're getting closer to the end of September, we talked about the positive steps, keeping things noteworthy when it comes to where we're at and delineating as well between cases and hospitalizations and deaths with COVID-19. This is our conversation. You. you know, when you look at this, it's a respiratory virus. You expect to see cases. That's what we're seeing. But when you look at the absolute numbers, yeah, it's something around, you know, 500 or so. But these cases are all spread out among schools. 
There's one or two schools that has more than 10 cases, but the rest of them, the school is clear. So this said, I think uh, from a risk mitigation standpoint, we're doing really well. We've improved the, uh, the uh, indoor air quality, having uh, people uh, in the families uh, vaccinated around. I think we're doing a good job. And the fourth wave looks like at least right now it's peaking. I think this may uh, go well, but we have to be vigilant for the wintertime. We had a guest on a couple of days ago talk uh, who actually had it was one of the parents that had created uh, his own testing program. But this is a struggle right now. And there's Western European countries and there's a lot of U.S. states uh, that are doing well with a program that's that they basically simply call test to stay, which means we're not sending cohorts home. We're not asking you to isolate. We're not asking you to barricade yourself in the house. And, and especially among 12 year old pluses that are uh, that are fully vaccinated already. That's every parent's nightmare to do the work to get the vaccinations for, say, their grade sevens and up and then have a have a positive test pop in their class. No one's sick, let's say. But everybody goes home for 14 days. That's that, that's not what any of us signed up for, hoped for. And that's so detrimental. Uh, that That's a real backward step if we're doing that. I completely agree. What our goal is right now is to keep kids in school. Absolutely, there's a risk of COVID that's around, but we have to benefit, uh, uh, outweigh that here, the, the pros and the cons. And, you know, by far, kids being in school is the, the major benefit here. And I, and I agree with you right now, having kids all of a sudden going out for 14 days, well, that's going to be huge disruptions. So this test to stay program that we're seeing, it's a lot of part of the States, a lot of parts of Europe. I think it's a great intervention. I wish they could have it. In, they have it in some form in Canada, but even sometimes like, uh, for example, uh, bringing in rapid tests on, on a broad scale. This could be something really, really helpful in keeping the education for this year completely uninterrupted. I think we can do it. It's just going to take some work. Dr. Suwan Chakrabarty, our guest on Toronto Today on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. I know you've mentioned this uh, in your social media. Um, I, I try to on the air, and obviously I'm nowhere near as qualified to do it, but the, there are so many examples. I had a couple people on who called in, and they're, you know, you have to, you do have to correct them sometimes. You listen, you res, you're respectful, but when they say, well, you know what, fully vaccinated people I hear can spread the virus just as much as a non-vaccinated person. We got to make these corrections. That's that right now. That's that's bad information, and it's also bad information when you get the quote unquote breakthrough case. These vaccinations were never meant. Say it again. We're never meant to present positive cases. It's never meant to stamp out the virus. It's to keep you safe from the effects of the virus and to keep you out of the hospital and keep you out of the emergency room. I completely agree. And you, know, you you hit the nail on the head there. When we're looking at the vaccination, yeah, it is true that theoretically, if somebody is uh, vaccinated and they're symptomatic with, with a, a breakthrough case of COVID, they can theoretically spread it. But the thing is, that's not the whole picture. The, the risk of that is completely, completely changed. Uh, and if you're not symptomatic as somebody who has a positive uh, case, for example, in an outbreak investigation, your chance as a vaccinated person of spreading COVID is extremely small. And these breakthrough cases, I agree with you. The vast majority of them, especially in people who are, are otherwise healthy, are very, very mild. So our big thing with the vaccination, our goal is what the vaccine is doing. It's keeping people from getting so sick they have to go to hospital. And that's what's happening right now. It's still happening, regardless of what you're hearing out of uh, out of Israel. It's still happening eight to nine months later. And I expect that to continue. It might dim a bit. We might need a booster in a couple of years. But right now, I don't think that's the case, except in certain uh, uh, specific groups. 
And that's something the U.S. is trying to walk back. I know the, the you know, President Biden referenced boosters and then all of a sudden it gets on the news. Well, will, will we need a third booster? Not if you're a healthy person right now, not if you're a person uh, in your 20s, 30s and 40s and you're vaccinated. But that that's the struggle with controlling the message, isn't it? Is people thinking, well, I thought the two shots of vaccine were fine. They are. You and I talked about one shot uh, of, of the vaccine being fine and certainly one shot. This is gaining more prominence. And this was almost like a like a crackpot view nine months ago was the idea of acquired immunity from covid recovery plus one shot in almost every study you've seen and I've seen uh, is going to give you at least as much protection as the two doses, maybe more. You don't want covid if you can avoid it. Of course you don't. But if you have recovered from it, especially before the vaccines were available, you've you, you're armed and, and you've got some you've bought some time on your hands uh, to to you know get yourself uh get yourself safe yeah and you know something some countries have actually made that adjustment i think in israel itself like if you have had covid a single dose of vaccine we know the evidence shows it's at least it as if not more protective than two doses of vaccine in somebody who hasn't seen covid and you know that would help with uh, reducing waste and also i just think that it's important for us to recognize and we are hearing about it now is natural immunity people who have been exposed to covid have immunity to the virus and i think that we can't ignore that uh, I remember speaking about this a couple of months ago, and uh, it was uh, unfortunately a, a bit of a lightning rod uh, topic that people were really making into a controversy. And I don't really see why, because this is a aspect of viral immunity. And this is actually, by the way, I, I think part of the reason it, uh, my wild card here for the unvaccinated group, uh, let's say in southwestern Ontario, that I suspect there's a significant amount of uh, natural immunity in there. And that might be helpful going forward, especially into the winter months, some uh, uh, immunity that we have recognized yet. Dr. Suman Chakrabarty, our guest. Uh, the passports, um, I, I've talked about them. People have really weighed in on uh, on the need for them. Um, I didn't want them. I hoped it wouldn't come to this, but I understand the necessity. I understand we've got to do this to protect employees and businesses. I think we have to, to create confidence. You and I might be able to go out and feel really good about doing anything we want to do because we're fully vaccinated. But I think about my parents in their mid-70s, and, and I know they're not yet. They don't want to be around unvaccinated people. That's their choice. So so I, I, I guess we're here. I guess th that that's necessary. Do you think it pushes uptake higher? That has to be the goal. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And I think that there is a burst when, when you know, when this uh, vaccine uh, passport went out in other provinces, we haven't seen that same burst here in Ontario, to be honest with you. But then again, we have a, a pretty good uh, vaccine uptake here in any case. For me, the vaccine passport makes the most sense when you have a lot of community transmission, especially, for example, in the fall and wintertime. And um, I think in that situation, what we can do is keep it there temporarily until we're able to, um, you know, bring the community transmission down. And then afterwards, it should be lifted, especially in the springtime. I don't think we're going to need it. And this should not be a permanent uh, type of uh, intervention. So when I'm curious to know when the Alberta news happened last week, um, what your reaction was, I, I had, you know, friendly debates and arguments with people and they'd say, well, it's all those restrictions. And I said, it is that the restrictions, they went endemic a little bit too soon. I know you tweeted about that. I know we conversed about that on the air and we said, this is the module that we're, we're all probably going to live by um, in the next several months, but they might be a little bit early on some of this stuff. I'd say as well, though. They've got hundreds of thousands more unvaccinated people um, coming and going and, and in communities and in schools and everywhere businesses are than we do in Ontario. I, I, I didn't when people said, oh, was, are we going to become the next Alberta? I, I just don't see it because of our numbers. 
I agree with you. And I think there's multiple reasons for that. We have much more vaccine uptake. They did open too um, early. I agreed. I think Dr. Hinshaw's plan was a difficult one to reason out. I think it was actually reasonable for a time in the future. It just was too early to do it at the time they did. Mm. And I do think that they didn't get as bad of a first and second wave as we did. I think that the wild card here is natural immunity in the unvaccinated population. Uh, I suspect it's quite high here, especially given how much, especially in the Peel region, how hard we were hit in all three ways. Waves, this could be the wild card that helps us uh, uh, in, in the wintertime and going forward. We're not out of the woods, but I think this is going to help quite a bit. So I, I know that that's there and I know there are certain uh, groups and, and, you know, we shouldn't be afraid to have these conversations about, uh, you know, pockets. We are we're a very cosmopolitan, uh, you know, wide open society where we mix together. I say it all the time. My kids soccer teams are regular uh, United Nations with kids from like eight different countries on it and eight different ethnic backgrounds. But there obviously has been uh, some messaging, some distrust there. There's been things that we talked about when the vaccine became more readily available and it just became obvious. The pockets you mentioned. Brampton, you mentioned Peel. Some of that was the essential work there. Uh, and some of it was we got to give people time off. We got to show people the direction and point them in the right places to get vaccinated and, and build that level of trust. But some of it as well is, um, as I know we've talked about it, the structural inequities that uh, that exist among some cultures. It's so true. And the thing is, what we're seeing here is that it has to be a central aspect of the response of any type of public health, any public health policy. You have to look at these things. And we saw that the lockdown, yeah, that was a tool that we used initially. It worked. Uh, and it was something that had a lot of costs associated with it. And I think that we had to do it a couple of more times when we really could have done other focused interventions to help these inequities. For example, the occupational to household transmission chain, targeting factories, especially in densely populated areas where you had a lot of intergenerational household. In any case, overall, this was something that we really, I think, could have done better in the first three waves. Hopefully, we pay more attention to that. We did have a great vaccine campaign that targeted this. And, you know, again, we have to remember that outbreaks and pandemics, they do have significant inequities across the population. And it's really important that we address that and look at that rather than, you know, a blanket type of intervention that has a lot of collateral damage. Yeah, it's uh, and it's fairly obvious. The stats document that the lockdowns, uh, you know, the, the less you have, the more the lockdowns have hurt you, the less kids have in their household uh, and the more cramped the learning conditions are, the more that's hurt uh, those kids. We just can't go backwards in that department. I want to bring on Jamie Ellerton, principal at Canaptis Public Relations and political strategist. Um, you know, we're all getting our sleep back post-election, so I appreciate you getting up early. I'm sure you've had a you know a catnap or two here and there in the last 70 hours or so after um, after a result Monday. Give me your read first on the result. Was there anything um, that that stood out? What most people seem to be surprised about Jamie is just what a what a mirror image it was of of 2019. Just not much much movement whatsoever among seats yeah well the seat uh, dynamics will be the same in the house of commons i think the power dynamics will be uh, a bit different uh, before we get into uh the conservative party arno tool i think the reality is the prime minister comes back uh, a weekend prime minister his, his leadership has weakened uh the next time he wants to try and push the liberal caucus into an election i think he's going to get more pushback uh from his members of parliament and uh It'll be harder for him to make the case for Canadians that this wasn't just a uh, his attempt at a power grab from majority government based on where he saw the polls. Uh, of course, everyone thought uh, the Liberals were sleepwalking into a majority as the summer started, and uh, it turned out to be anything but the case. So uh, I, I expect this parliament to be a little bit less acrimonious here in the short term. 
But uh, we have a lifetime in politics, and no doubt they'll find something to argue about in yeah. short order. Jamie Ellison, our guest on Toronto Today, Global News Radio 640 Toronto. I read uh, an op-ed from uh, Jen Gerson, who I think is great, and she wrote it this in McLean's yesterday. It was basically an advice column, like an Ann Landers for our older uh, demographic. They'd remember her uh, more than you and I would, young guys. But uh, but nonetheless, she wrote this about almost an advice column to the Conservatives. I want to see if you agree with this. Justin Trudeau isn't going to get more popular in the long run. Cease fretting over your own numbers for a minute and look at his. The worm began to turn with the SNC-Lavalin scandal back in 2019. And with the exception of some short-term bumps in popularity around the pandemic, the trend line is clear. His big red balloon hasn't popped, but it's been leaking air for years. This happens in sports. This happens in pop culture. Should the conservatives just play the long game here? Be patient. Don't make any panicky moves. Yeah, I think there's some uh, some real credence to what Jen Gerson's writing there. But I also think if you look at uh, what the selection was, uh, that a lot of conservatives feel this was very winnable. And I think for Aero Tool to uh, stay on as leader, I think there's a real possibility. I think he needs to forcefully make the case uh, as to why. And I think part of that is demonstrating some humility and saying and showing why we lost. I don't think conservatives should rush to judgment and just push him out. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was an extraordinary year. It's a bit of a cliche that in the best of times, it's hard for the leader of the opposition to get any traction uh, and to get known to Canadians prior to an election that was doubly so for Aaron O'Toole, who was elected in the uh, right as the second wave was taking off as leader of the Conservative Party and then fought a general election in the midst of this fourth wave. I think if you look in the days ahead, uh, two of the things I'll be looking for is are there any high-profile caucus members that come out and really on a persistent basis, defend Aaron O'Toole's leadership and the teams. Uh, If you see that, it's probably going to be able to quell any kind of movement to uh, replace him. And the other is uh, he's talked about how there's going to be a post-election review, a post-mortem, if you will, uh, and just throwing a a symbolic body under the bus and saying (laughs) things are going to be better. Uh, I think people see through that for what it is, and so there's got to be a genuine kind of uh, recognition in terms of what's gone on, what's gone wrong, and what he's going to do, as opposed to just the really tired political shtick of like, I'm as mad as you are. I'm probably the most mad. Yeah. I think people see that kind of thing for what it is. So this story of locking down the member database, is that something that, that'd be proper protocol? You want to keep what's yours if you're Aaron O'Toole and, and your team, or will this be seen as, as something a little more like, you know, insecure? And, and to a greater extent, the, the next step from insecurity is probably paranoia in terms of people coming after what's his. Um, it's, it's that old principle, you know, um, you know you, you bet whatever it is, you best not miss the king. If you're going for the king, don't miss. But he locks down the member database. Uh, is this something where you could make the case that they're being quite concerned about about challenges to his leadership? No, so I'll actually correct something on that in terms of what you read in that Toronto Star story. This is not Aaron O'Toole's data. This is the Conservative Party of Canada's data. It's a database that has the voter database and historical information on voter files that the party's been building over years and communicating with voters election after election There are several people in every single riding who get added to the database during an election period because, of course, we have new candidates. And with new candidates come new teams. So this is actually a standard operating procedure to prevent people from, after an election's taken place, from continuing to have access to sensitive voter data 
uh, and Elections Canada voter data list that the parties get on a regular basis. It's updated even when there's not an election uh, so that parties can communicate with Canadians on an ongoing basis. This is shutting out people who no longer are working on a campaign uh, to secure or actual to the party's voter database and only give it to people who are going to need it on an ongoing basis. So this has absolutely nothing to do uh, with Aaron O'Toole and perhaps as those who want to challenge his leadership. This is actually good governance. Uh, when you let someone go or someone leaves a company, you don't give them perennial access to company files on a go-forward basis. And this is the exact same thing. The election's over. Volunteers who are working on the campaigns no longer have access to the party's voter database. And there are a process in place where people can work with the party's regional organizer that's paid staff and the members of the, uh, for the party who help coordinate these things on an ongoing basis to uh, get data access back on an as-needed basis. So the fra- the fr- so, so the, Jamie, the framing of the story is something, not that you'd take issue with, but just it's clarity. So the Conservative Party locked the MPs and candidates out, but I read this as it is. Multiple sources told the Star that O'Toole's team had denied them, meaning the paper, access on Wednesday morning, or told the sources access on Wednesday morning to that party's system. But you're saying the framing of the story, like the headline is Conservatives Locked Out Member Database is challenged to Aaron O'Toole's leadership grows you would say they're not they're not necessarily interrelated. No, I think people who want to complain about that and find that pretty reasons are, are going to. Yeah. Uh, and it's obviously from a framing, you could see why that sounds bad and looks bad for Aaron O'Toole and the party. So it's advancing their own agenda if that's what they're trying to do, enforcing a leadership review stuff. This is actually about data integrity and ensuring mm-hmm. the integrity of the system after an election period. Where, again, there's 338 candidates. The conservatives are setting back Based off the latest results and count, about 119 of them, that means there's 200 people, uh, 200 ridings that aren't sending back conservative MPs, their candidates, their volunteers, all would have have had access to that database for their ridings going forward. Uh, This is about data integrity and securing the system and standard practice for the party after an election period. Last thing for you, I, I rejected yesterday, and I still do, the idea that, well, you know, what a waste of time this election was. I get the frustration. I get that people, um, you know, n- maybe necessarily uh, just shrug their shoulders about it. And I think the polling showed that as we got closer to September and the liberals rose in the polls, there wasn't any one moment. It just struck me there were people getting more engaged that weren't necessarily engaged or all fired up for an election in late August. That's a natural thing, and I'd say especially during the pandemic. But I think people had their say in all the parts. Parties. They're saying that Jugmeet Singh and the NDP, they might like him as a guy, but right now he's not moving the needle. There's an outright rejection of the Green Party. Um, I, 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 just, I think the election actually told us a lot. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think people try and find this like overarching narrative as if like Canadians got together and wrote like a four-verse song with a chorus and have the choir sing the parts in unison to send a message. I don't think uh, politics in our democracy quite works like that. But I think one thing is clear is people kind of aren't really enthused by their leaders, period, right now. Justin Trudeau has now won a third mandate with the lowest share of the vote of any government in Canadian history. Uh, The Conservatives kind of are on their bedrock uh, floor of 30 percent, a pretty solid base that the party has to work with to grow going forward, but it's having issues growing. Mm -hmm. The NDP continues to float around 20 percent and no real, no one party has really captured the imagination or the inspiration of Canadians to move the dial and say how to move forward. And so I think Canadians sent back a status quo 
kind of uh, parliament where no one party is going to be able to mm-hmm. govern uh, with a parliamentary majority. I think if you look at so much of what's going on, I think it's, uh, at the beginning of the summer, everyone recognized that Canadians are kind of sick of politicians. They're sick of the daily COVID news conferences. They're sick of seeing government in their face constantly. And while, yes, there's very important work the government does, we elect representatives to do it for us so that we don't have to deal with it on a constant daily basis. And I, when, the, when you look at these results and how the polls really didn't move too much after the first couple of weeks uh, into the campaign that had the conservative numbers come up and the liberal numbers go down. And a lot of people account for that is Justin Trudeau calling an election uh, and Aaron O'Toole being a kind of nice guy as opposed to the fire-breathing dragon that his opponents tried to paint him out to be. You then saw things level out from there. Yeah, yeah, well said. Thanks very much for the uh, insight, Jamie, and thanks for getting up early for us. Really enjoyed it. Always great to join you. Have a good one. Thank you. Uh, Jamie Ellerton joining us. Uh, He, of course, uh, principal at Canaptus Public Relations. Dave Bradley joins us now with what happened when this date, September 23rd in history. Yeah, and and on this day in 1952, the first closed-circuit pay-per-view of a sporting event happened. Um, I would assume back then many people would thought, yeah, this is not going to work. I can just watch it for free. Right, but uh, no, it, it turns turns out it worked out pretty well. I think it started to peak. They did a lot of the WrestleManias were like yeah. this, right? Like you couldn't see them Boxing anywhere else. Was huge on pay per view. Yeah, um, but I don't know that any other sport really. Like I, I know there was all this talk. Like, what if they put the Super Bowl on pay per view? Well, you, you know, you but advertisers don't want that, so you can get more ad dollars yeah. because they know it's free, and then you're limiting access to people. But I remember it in the you know I remember it in the mid '90s how. Um, with the satellite dishes, right? Some people had U.S. satellite dishes, and now and then you'd have to pay-per-view a sporting event. they put a regular season game on pay-per-view, and you'd be like, why would I pay nine ninety-five for this? Exactly. But people did it. Yeah, and what's the most that you've ever paid for a pay-per-view oh, gosh. sporting event? We had people over for the Mayweather-Pacquiao fight in 2015, and I think that fight was was 100 bucks. I don't yeah. think I've ever gone over 100 bucks. I feel like the Mayweather-McGregor fight Right, Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather was more than that, and I just thought that'd be a bit of a circus, so I didn't do that. What about you? I, I'm thinking back. It must have been in college when uh, Tyson fought Holyfield, the rematch. Yes. And, and I think that was around 100 bucks too. I think a bunch of us got together and chipped in and watched that That's one. where no one's ear was bitten off. I was going to say you were hoping or was to see it? another ear get oh, bitten totally. off. Yeah. yeah. You paid to see an ear get bitten yeah. off, but it didn't happen. What uh, about you, Rob? Would you, uh, you know, random uh, Raptors-Grizzlies game never, on a Tuesday night? Never. 1295? <laughs> never paid for it. Cough no. up. No. Cough it up. No. Okay. <laughs> Even when I get tickets, I get them for free. Yeah. Oh, nice. On this day, 1992, Menno Raom became the first female goaltender, first female hockey player to play in an NHL game when she suited up for the Tampa Bay Lightning in a preseason game. She played just one period, gave up two goals and nine shots, and the game was against the St. Louis Blues. I remember watching that with my university roommates. I do. We thought that was a big deal at the time. Then she went down and played uh, and played minor league. Mm-hmm. And I said this to my wife last night. She's doing a story on Manon for the Globe and Mail, sort of the remembrances of it. And But I don't think there's ever been a woman play in the American Hockey League. So I think Manon Braum still played. Shannon Zabados went down, and she's playing in some central league with men a couple years ago. Haley Wickenheiser went over and played with men in either Finland or Sweden. Finland, yeah. One of those countries with the good-looking people that <laughs> get free university. I don't know which one, but uh, but I don't think anybody's played at a higher level than Manon Rayom did. I think you might be right. 
Yeah, no, that's interesting. On this day, 1994, Shawshank Redemption debuted in theaters. I see you do all the time. You're thick as thieves you are. He must have said something. Also, Warden. Not a word. Lord, it's a miracle! Man up and vanished like a fart in the wind. Nothing left but some damn rocks on the windowsill. And that cupcake on the wall. Let's ask her. All right, so there's four guys here. Uh, Chris Creston, our producer, filling in for Shiva Siddiqui today. Uh, four guys just sitting around uh, with non-alcoholic beverages this early in the morning. Uh, Shawshank's known as a real guys movie. Chris, like, rate Shawshank. Do you love it? How many times you've seen it? That kind of thing. I have probably seen Shawshank Redemption more than any other movie in my life. Uh, we had it on VHS. I have it on DVD and Blu-ray. I love this movie. Okay, that's a big... See, I kind of like it. It's a little like U2. Like, some people are fanatical about U2. I just, I'm like, no, they're really good. Dave, what's your thought on Shawshank? It is one of those movies that whenever it's on any channel, you know, you it stay could be it. broken up. Oh, you totally watch it right to the end. No matter how many times you've seen it, I've probably seen it a hundred times, too. Rob, you grimaced when Chris Creston <laughs> pledged his undying I religious love for Shawshank. I was shocked. I thought he was back to the future all the way, but... Um, <laughs> He's a Marty McFly guy I still. Know he is. I think. I know. I know. But uh, I think I've seen it once, and it was in school, and wow. I like barely remember it. I remember it being good, but... I honestly That's an odd school really movie. Me. Usually they do the uplifting well, movies I'm in school. I'm that it was 94 because I feel like I saw it in school in 94, but there's no way I could have seen it in 94 in school. No. You so. should go back and watch it again for the first time. It's worth it. Okay. Yeah. Totally. I, but I think it gives me a dream every year that I am incarcerated. Like oh, it's no. now and then. <laughs> I don't watch Jaws a lot because I picture myself stranded in the ocean, and Shawshank me, makes me feel like I've been in car- naturally for a crime I didn't commit. Oh, one that I did commit. 100%. Well, we don't know the difference. Uh, this day in 2019, Greta Thunberg made a very famous speech at the UN Climate Action Summit. Entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. How dare you? Yeah. Um, the panel, it's weird because there's a, there's adults on the panel and they don't know how quite to react yeah. to a 13-year-old just, <laughs> just going bonkers. I, I've used the how dare you quite frequently, oh, though. Too, all, way too all much, time. I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, think the, I think the pandemic, Chris, I, th- I feel like the pandemic kind of like thwarted her growth. Like she, was, she just became somebody everybody knew and everybody talked about, and then the pandemic happened. And I know we shouldn't put environmental concerns aside, but she might be like 25 with three kids now. I don't know. Like it just—it's <laughs> true. We don't know. It feels like a lot of times passed, Chris. Yeah, yeah. The second coming of uh, Greta Thunberg is uh, probably going to be a little bit more adult and maybe a little less dramatic once the pandemic's over. Mm, it's possible. Yeah, Greta more dramatic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, can't wait to hear what fairy tales we come up with next. Uh, and the big happy birthday, 72 years old today, Bruce Springsteen. If I had, had to guess, now I think I knew how old he was. I think I knew that he turned 70 a while back, but I think you'd look and go, because age is just a number. I think yeah. I, people would, if people didn't know better, Dave, I think they'd guess, is he 66, is he 67? Because he just has that found a you thing happening right he, he very much does yeah if you see him even up on stage you're like he he moves 
too well to be 72. I would never have thought he'd be 72 years old. I told a massive Springsteen fan uh, yesterday, I go, we're going to talk about it on the show. He's 72 tomorrow. And he's like, I just hope we get one more tour. But you don't. But you don't think about that. Like it's there's true, there there are acts yeah, that eventually there. somebody. And I think the pandemic is going to make more people go out onto the road. But I also think it's going to make people say, when is it time to to wrap this up? Like they've been waiting and waiting and waiting, and you lose your sort of will to be out there and 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 you know be on that treadmill over and I over. I think it's again. amazing even at the age you know in, in your sixties to do that because it is taxing. Yeah. But think of the show Springsteen does. Like Elton John is only two years older, but I think the like Elton John feels a ton older than Springsteen. Yeah, I agree. That doesn't That's move as point. quick, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Likes the pastries a touch more. He just does, yeah, and Bruce, I like pastries. Bruce Nothing wrong still with jumping in the air, right? I mean, he's still doing those scissor kicks in the air, isn't he? When's When's the last year you think Elton John did a scissor kick? Oh man, the year I was born, <laughs> <Right>. 1977. <laughs> in the first ten minutes of uh, Rocket Man, <laughs> yeah, exactly, I think. Chris. Chris, do you like Rocket Man as much as Shawshank? Because we just don't—we're learning so much about your uh, your Siskel and Ebert-esque. Uh, uh, Not nearly enough, but I think that Springsteen's <laughs> got the right idea. Maybe if Elton uh, decided just to set up on Broadway and have people come to him, yeah, he'd probably oh, be doing better. Just drive like Billy Joel, like just drive to the concert, and then yeah. drive home again. Like yeah. yeah, yeah, make people travel to the city to see your gig as opposed to the other way around. It's that Muhammad and, uh, and Mountain thing. Thanks very much for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. Back with a live show tomorrow to wrap our week, 5.30 to 9, right here on Global News Radio, 6.40 Toronto. If you could subscribe to the podcast, rate the podcast, tell us what we're doing well and what you'd like to hear more of. We're always happy to hear from you. Thanks again for listening.